0: Hey, good morning. It's really good to have you here as we continue in our series called I Believe, where we're really going to be focusing on what we believe, but not just what we believe in an ideology, but what we believe in what we're living so that our orthodoxy matches our orthopraxy, or that we have a straight practice and our lives are consistent with what we believe. And, uh, you know, this past week we took a look at what is saving, uh, what is saving faith? What is salvation all about? And we've talked about it. It's it's uh, it's trusting in the work of God for me through Christ. We talked about the elements of what it looks like to trust in Christ. And we looked at acknowledging who God is, that he is a God who is holy and he is just. He is a God who will judge sin and make all wrongs right. But he is a God also who is not just holy and just, but he is a God of grace and he is a God of love. So he balances those two by br- bringing Jesus Christ on the scene to be the one who took the payment uh, from our sin and provided a way back to God in a relationship with him because God wants us back, folks. God is a courageous warrior who goes to seek after people, people who are fallen, people like you and me, to present Jesus Christ. You know, you may be here because you trusted in that work and you're back, and that's really cool. It's an honor to have you here. We talked about acknowledging God, and we talked about accepting who we are, and we accepted that we're sinners, and that really God owes us nothing but his wrath. He really doesn't owe us anything besides that, but Jesus is our only hope. And so he called you to personally trust in his work for your life. You know, this week I got word that a 93-year-old woman put her faith in Jesus Christ last week. Isn't that awesome? To hear what God is doing when we put forth God's word and we call people to it. We're going to be a church that is focused on that. You know, churches are not, uh, you know, churches are not uh, people who don't have sin in their lives. We are all sinners. Welcome to the club. It's good to have you here. And we're not perfect, but we are following someone who is perfect. And that's who we want to really raise up and glorify today as we go into God's Word. Because that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about the assurance of your faith, the assurance of your salvation. Um, what happens after you trust Christ and you mess up? Can you lose your salvation? Will, will your faith kind of fade in time and be in need of some type of religious charging? Are you in and out of a relationship with Christ? Are you in and out of grace? on what can you base your assurance of your faith? I want to look at that. In talking with some people about faith, people who didn't yet trust in Christ, people have said to me, boy, it just sounds too easy. So you're saying that the greatest mess up on the face of the earth could turn to Christ and trust in him and he'll save them. I said, yes, you're looking at one of them. Uh, no, it just sounds too easy. I mean, shouldn't they be required to do some things? I mean, I'm not that bad. So if I went to church, I could kind of get in. But those really bad people, and especially those guys, I think about some of the worst people who've ever lived, they could have just asked for it and received it? Yes, because God's grace goes to the greatest need. Sounds too easy. Well, that's what grace is. Grace is God's work for you plus nothing. Nothing. You have nothing to boast when it comes to your relationship with Christ. It's all been provided to you by God. And so I want to just get, kind of bring that up as we, we talk about it. There's a big angle of on what does the assurance of my faith, faith, what does it rest on? You know, um, how many times do you have to pray the prayer? To keep things going with your relationship with Christ. I grew up in a church and at the age of four years old, the gospel made sense to me. We were around a family table and it was right after dinner and uh, the, the devotional topic was on heaven and hell and I wanted to go to heaven. That's all that made sense to me. So I didn't want to go to hell. And I realized I was a sinner. And apart from Christ, that's where I was headed. And I just ran. I mean, just as a kid. Ah, oh, Mom, tell me how I should do this. Much like the, the book of Acts. What must I do to be saved? And I trusted in the work of Christ for me. And you know, now the whole gospel message is really profound to me. Then it was really simple. It's still simple, but very profound to me after I followed Christ for a while. But I remember throughout my childhood and then into my teen years, I would you'd go to bed at night and i go, Wow, I didn't have a good day and I messed up and I said these words or I thought those thoughts. I don't know if I'm a believer anymore. And so I would just say the prayer again, just to be sure. And this happened as a repetitive, repetitive uh, you know, cycle in my life about 15, 20 times. I remember just to be sure in case something happened when I slept. I, I didn't want to lose my salvation. And the reality of that is God wants so much more than just you wondering. He wants you to be confident. And so his word has given us to give us confidence in a relationship with, us, with him so that we aren't asking that question because the reality is, is we're all still sinners. And we're sinners saved by grace. And the key point that I want everyone to remember in this room is that our salvation is assured by the promise of God, not the performance of us. Salvation is a work of God by grace through faith. It is not through works, lest anyone would boast. You know, most of the religious systems in our world is all about what you're doing for God that would allow him to have favor on you that would get you in. And the Bible says the exact opposite is what God has done for you. And he calls that that work would be applied through faith in each of our lives. You know, this is an increasingly important topic, and it's important that we as a church and we as individuals understand where our assurance of salvation comes on, comes from. In whom does it rest? And the big question is, is it's either going to rest in you or it's going to rest in God. And God wants to make sure it rests in Him. Promises, folks, are kept by faithfulness, and God has a perfect history with His promises. He is he has shown over and over again through biblical history, the character of a rich history of steady, reliable behavior. And we're going to be taking a um, a survey of the Old and New Testament and the promises of God and his faithfulness so that we would get it through our minds over and over that our salvation is kept by him and his promises and that we would find that assurance by his work and not our own. There's two Old Testament words I want to kind of bring before your attention. The first is that word for covenant, and it's the Hebrew word called berith. And uh, God would strike a covenant with his people through a promise, and he did it through a person called a mediator, and he would give a blessing to this person and a physical sign as a reminder of his promise to them, as well as an invitation to a new way of life for them. And there would always be a sacrifice. So God would be striking it, showing his faithfulness and his work for their sin, calling them out of sin and into redemption and restoration in in their lives. God was the one who shows up and is faithful. It's never been the faithfulness of these people. It's always been the faithfulness of God. And we're going to be looking at that. And so God would strike that berith with people. And he would do it because he is a God of chesed and that's another hebrew word and chesed everybody just clear your throat by saying chesed that is a it means two words in the english it means loving kindness and that is god's relentless um, stick to it love for his people that would bring him back to the table amidst the backdrop of people rejecting him and walking away from him and being unfaithful, of him of them worshiping other gods, he would be chesed. He would come back to them in a faithful, reliable, steady, unwavering, committed, enduring, never give up, keep coming back kind of love. It is the Old Testament word for grace, God's loving kindness. And this is who God is. And it's because he's a God of grace that he would strike a covenant and never give up. On his people. And it's because of his chesed that you are here and can have the confidence of a relationship and of your salvation with him. And so what I want to do is kind of walk through the Old Testament right now and take a look at some key people God made this berit, this, this covenant with. And uh, I'm going to do it kind of like how we do it here with our children. Downstairs, there's a 55-foot-long wall, which Wendy Unrein, one of our artists here, has detailed the whole story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, from creation to the return of Christ. And if and our goal is is that by the time a child reaches this fifth or sixth grade, they could walk with their parent down this hall and basically tell their parents the whole story of biblical history from creation all the way to the book of Revelation. And so we had Wendy just kind of detail the major stories of the scriptures. And I'm going to be sharing some of of her works for you just as a visual reminder of what God promised with his people. In the hopes that you would see God's history of keeping promises. That you would rely on his work, not your own. The first person is the person of Noah. As you may realize that the the world became increasingly more and more wicked in the time of Noah. And God shows up to Noah and says, I will strike a covenant with you. Verse uh, uh, Genesis 6, verse 18, he says, I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark. Noah knew nothing about an ark. God was going to show him that. And you will enter the ark. Noah knew nothing about the type of rain that God was going to send. He had to trust that God was going to save him. You and your sons and your wife and your son's wives with you. By one man trusting in the work of God, his whole family would be saved. This is something of salvation that God has called uh, a person into, but it would be all of God's doing. And so God did send what he said he was going to send. And he destroyed the world except Noah and his family. And after the flood receded and the ark rested on dry ground, Noah came out of the ark and built an altar in thankfulness to the Lord. And God gave him another berit. He struck another covenant with him. And the covenant was that never again would he destroy the world through a flood like this. And God has kept his promise and he gave a physical sign as a rainbow, and he has been faithful to that promise. The next person is Abraham and Abraham of the world again was scattered through the Tower of Babel and people were not worshiping God. And Abraham was called. God shows up on the scene and strikes a covenant with him in Genesis 17. After he left his country, he said, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father Of many nations. Abraham knew nothing of what it was to have his own lineage come from him. He and Sarah did not have a child together. But God was going to say, Look at the stars. Look at the stars. As many as there are stars, so shall your descendants be. God strikes a covenant that you will be a father of many nations. And we go, and that that promise continues from in the provision of Isaac, who was born to Abraham. And Sarah in their 90s, folks, a child was born to them. And and at the end of Genesis, you have four families, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Joseph, who are affected by this. And you see the expansion of a family and a lineage and a God remaining true to his promise. And in the book of Exodus, just 400 years later, you have over a million descendants of one man. Folks, God was the one who was protecting his promises. But those people, those descendants of Abraham were under slavery in Egypt. And scripture says that God remembered his covenant that he made with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. And that's where we join with God coming to Moses and striking a covenant with him. Moses would be the mediator of another covenant in which there would be redemption from bondage and freedom to worship, where he called that he says, "If you in Exodus 19:5 and 6, God says, "If you obey me and fully keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, priests and a holy nation." Here the call was and a promise was it's that you would be this kingdom of priests. You would be the nation that I would, all the other nations on earth would see me. This is who God is. He is a covenant keeper. There was a sign that he gave them to remember this covenant. And that was the sign of Passover. Whenever they celebrated Passover, they celebrated the provision and the deliverance and salvation of God through that sacrifice. And then there was God's covenant with David. David shows up on the scene when God has started with a nation, a people that promised, that continued from Moses into David, where David is a king. And God says to David in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 to 13, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. At first glance if you know biblical history you would think, "Oh, is this Solomon that God is talking about?" Yes, it is, but not only. Because they were types, they were types of a future king who would come. And the, all of the Old Testament prophets would say, out of the line of David, out of the throne, the sign of this covenant, out of the throne of David would come a new leader. And his kingdom will be without end. And the, it looked forward, it looked forward, this covenant looked forward to a fulfillment in another mediator through a promise of God. And that's where when we come to Jeremiah 31, it's at the end of biblical Old Testament history where the, the Israelites have just left uh, a, a relationship with God and God is about to scatter them through the, the nation of Babylon. And, and Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-one, God says to his people, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Look at verse 33 of Jeremiah 31. It says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And then he, as you read down further, it says, For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Here a new covenant is struck in which uh, uh, looking forward to, to God's law written on their hearts to restore and redeem a people with God. And that coming person was jesus christ the mediator of a new covenant in hebrews nine fifteen, listen to how the writer of hebrews talks about jesus as the fulfillment of this new covenant it says christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant we're going to talk about that on what Jesus did on that cross as we look at his fulfillment of this. But as we look back, do you see what God was doing? He was showing them the picture as he prepared them for the fulfillment of these promises in the person and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He was using each one of them as a type where Noah was a picture that as he trusted in God, God would bring salvation and Jesus was the fulfillment of Noah. In the sense that, that when we trust in him, that meteor of a new covenant, that God would, God would protect us and, and uh, save us from his own wrath. Jesus is a better Abraham in which he's the fulfillment of that promise that out of the descendants, even a more spiritual picture of descendants through the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is a better Moses in that he was obedient to the law and followed every law without sin. Jesus is a better David in that he came and he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus is the picture of the fulfillment of this covenant that God had started because God, folks, is true to his promises and God's perfect promises continue in Christ. There's some think that the old God worked with people in the Old Testament differently than he worked with people in the New Testament. No, it's always based on God's work for them. That's nothing new. God has a consistent pattern of that. And it's because of the promise of God that we have a relationship. It's because of God's faithfulness. Behind the backdrop of every covenant, there was the rejection of God and the the turning away. And that's why Jesus called to an acceptance of who he is. And repenting from those ways to trust in him. And so what I want to focus on is is since Jesus is that promise of God for us. What do we celebrate that we have? What builds our confidence with Christ? That as we look and we celebrate who Christ is and what he's done for us. That we can base our assurance on him. What do we have with Jesus? That's really key. Because you think if he's just a guy that's a Visa card of grace for you, you just keep charging your sins to him, a relationship is really kind of of minimized. And, you know, I've seen people when they talked about your assurance of faith, and I've seen the two extremes. One is just get people to profess Christ and they're in. No problem. Say the magical prayer and you're good to go. And I've seen people who go, no, you've got to do this and this and this to stay in. Because if you don't, you know, you'll lose it. And both have a negative picture. I don't think the scriptures are going to speak to any one of those extremes. Would you ever think that a wedding ceremony would go, uh, you know, something, something where you go, you know, as as those vows are about to be made, where, where the groom says, "Hey, I just am wondering, what's the least I need to do to love you?" You think that works in a relationship? Um, do you think a wedding ceremony should be, well, boy, if you don't do this, you're out, you know, (laughs) you know, as long, if you don't take out the garbage every week, you know, this thing is over. No, a covenant is based on the promise of God. And we have to do that. And now true repentance and true turning to is going to be shown in a life. It's going to be imperfect, but it's going to be shown. And so we want to call you to faithfulness, to respond to a faithful God in a faithful life. Nowhere in scripture does it say, hey, just do whatever you want. You know, as long as you said the magical prayer. No, you're talking about a heart that has changed because God will give you a new heart. That was one pictures of that. And it's broken, as Paul talks about in Romans 8. Is the things he wants to do, he doesn't do. And the things he doesn't do, he should do. And, and who will save him? He says, thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ. Because he's the only one who saves. So. There are a few things. That the New Testament says that we have. And they're they're great words. And they're words that aren't really spoken. Outside of these walls. But they're words that we need to grasp. They're great words of the promises of God. And the first one is the promise. Of justification. Justification is a legal declaration. By God. Where God is acting as a judge. Declaring that your. Your life is righteous in his sight. And the only way this can happen is through the person and the work of Jesus. Paul talks about it in Romans 3.26, where he says, God did it to demonstrate his justice at this present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And what this means is, when Jesus died on the cross... He died for you. He died in your place. God's righteousness and his grace were not compromised. There's many in our world that says God is just a God of love. And they ignore the fact that he's also a God of justice. Folks, we're all accountable to God. And apart from Christ, we stand condemned. With Christ, as Romans 8, 1 says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have the promise of total and complete forgiveness. David Hinkle, when he was preaching two weeks ago, did a wonderful job in just saying that all those sins of the Old Testament, when they were committed, and all those sacrifices were offered, those sacrifices were just like minimum payments on a really huge visa bill. That's what they were. In other words, a minimum payment doesn't pay the interest, it doesn't pay the principal. You'd be paying for years to get that. They just keep the the credit card company happy. giving them some cash flow. But when Jesus died on the cross, he paid for principal and interest and penalties. Folks, he cleared it all away and restored you into a relationship with Christ. So that through Christ, I literally have peace with God. Peace with him. We have his favor. We don't just have the quelling of a, of a war. We have a relationship with him. Romans 5.1 says, therefore, since we have been, there's that word, justified... Through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God is no longer at war with us. His anger is no longer directed to us. It was all directed to Christ. Folks, without Christ, you have nothing except the anger of God. With Christ, you have peace. You have relationship. Welcome. Welcome to be a community of people who are justified, whose sins God no longer remembers. That's something we need to celebrate every day and something we need to keep coming back to. Secondly, there is the promise for adoption, that we're now part of the community of God, part of the people of God. In in that sign of this new covenant, the spirit, Romans 8 verse 16 says this. It says, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children Now, if we are children, we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we we might also share in his glory. This is a picture that that, uh, one of God's works through the spirit is to remind you who's your father. He's constantly reminding you are part of the family. Romans 8.23, if you just move your eyes down just a few verses, it says not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the the redemption of our bodies. That's even a future adoption that's part of our present adoption when God will completely restore us to himself. 1 Peter 2.10 says, once you weren't a people of God, now we are a people of God. Galatians 4 repeats this whole concept. That once you were a slave in sin, now you are a son, a special son, a child of God. Ephesians three verse 14 and 15 Paul even proclaimed that he prayed in the, before the Father from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth derives Their name. Folks, we are now part of a a family of God through Jesus Christ. You belong. Through Christ, I have a position in the family of God, which means that there will be an inheritance. You have the greatest, wealthiest, wisest father who gives that inheritance. It's because of our blood relationship to him through Christ that we are adopted into this family. No one but the choice of God is responsible for this. If you've been adopted, you realize it wasn't your choice. It was a choice of someone, parents, who came alongside you and loved you and showed you that love and nurtured you in that environment. And you're part of the family of God. And if we really understand that, we were once orphans, but now we are part of the family. We give the glory to a loving Heavenly Father. So we have the promise of justification of adoption. Thirdly, we have the promise of sanctification. That God is committed to making you look more and more like Jesus. And he sets your life apart, away from sin and into righteousness through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul said this in First Thessalonians 5, 23, He said, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The God who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Even sanctification itself is a work of God. Here it says, who's going to call you? Who's going to do it? God is going to do that. Now we're going to spend all of next week looking at the work of God in through through sanctification in our lives so i want you to come back okay will you come back next week okay we'll do that some of you might want to come to the seven o'clock service on saturday night and make some more room for people here but but come back next week what are we what are we talking about when we think about sanctification well the reality is is through christ we have the power of god in our lives the, the spirit works in a powerful way and moves our life, lives away from sin and into righteousness. We have the presence of God. Whereas the presence of the Holy Spirit used to be in a temple made with human hands, now the Spirit of God lives in our hearts, made by God, a new heart in which His Spirit, so that your body would become a temple of the Holy Spirit. There ought to be, as, as, as God is sanctifying you, there ought to be a change. I am not where I want to be, but I'm, I'm, I'm closer to the Lord today than I was five years ago. I have a greater heart and a love for him this year than I even had last year. And I, I love people better than I did several years ago because God is changing my heart and it's his work. You know, there's there's an angle that if we seek after God and we pursue him through obedience, that that there's going to be this self-righteousness that we think we're doing great. And the exact opposite happens. The more I I obey the Lord, the more I realize how much he changes my heart, not how much I'm changing myself. And so it breeds in me, an obedience to the Lord breeds a greater humility in me for the greatness of God and, and the wonder of what he's able to do with my broken down, messed up heart. And we have a promise that God is committed to doing that in each of our lives. Then there is the promise of restoration. Look, listen to what First Peter says about this future restoration that's going to happen. First Peter 5:10 and 11 says, "And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast." To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With Christ, folks, I have the eternal purposes of God. God is going to restore things. He's going to make all wrongs right. And that is going to be a day that will change your existence for eternity. He will give you a totally renovated new body and a new heart and a new, new mind in which he will be at the center of. And you will find the total joy of the reason you were created to reflect his image throughout everything that you are. And this is going to happen. And you have the promise of God. And the God who has been perfect in his promises up to this point will be faithful and complete this promise in each of us but this is a restoration that's going to happen in the future. But we are to be a part of restoration in the present. We are to show glimpses, snapshots, little videos through our lives of what happens when God gets a hold of a heart and changes and makes us new. We're to show it in calling people to respond to Christ. We're to show it and to go out and to be God's ...picture of restoration in our community and in this world. It is the reason that God is a God of restoration... ...that we go and we leave this place... ...and we go to places like the Dominican Republic... ...and that we go to the Honduras and El Salvador... ...and we dig wells... ...because we go to a place where we show a physical picture of restoration... ...in order to proclaim a spiritual picture of restoration through Jesus Christ. This is why we dump a ton of money into our community, serving them sacrificially so that they would see that we are a people of God's restoration who makes a difference in their community. And that's why we're committed. Because God is a God of restoration and we give them a picture and why being involved in God's eternal purposes, not passive, not on the sideline, not just waiting for Him to return, but engaged in a community of believers, serving in this community and out into the world, proclaiming the gospel and serving the gospel through compassion and through service and through giving and generosity. Folks, we get the picture. And we long, this involvement in this type of restorative work builds a greater anticipation for the return of God. Sadly, the church in America is hoping Jesus doesn't return for just a few more kicks on what life will bring them. Sadly, they're looking for the next little band-aid that fills the greater hole of need in their lives. And it's like C.S. Lewis writes in his book, The Eternal Weight of Glory. And he writes this, It's just one more little gadget. It's just one more different thing we do to our homes. It's just one more little relationship here on earth. It's not the relationship with your eternal creator and the savior of your soul, Jesus Christ. Anything less than him, anything less than him, is not worship. Folks, we were made to worship. We're made to be in relationship. We are, we are following and seeking after God. And he is daily like, daily, saying, I love you. You're part of this family. This walk with him is never meant to just go on doing whatever you want to do. It's meant to be in relationship with God with you on a daily, daily relationship in the body of believers. Worshipping in a community of people. And the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 10, says that what we're called to do in light of the promises of God, we're called to persevere. We're called to persevere. Hebrews 10.35 speaks to a group of people who watched people suffer and die for the cause of the gospel, who had some of their very possessions confiscated by these governments that took them over in, in retaliation to their Christian beliefs. And they joyfully saw it as an honor. And the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 10.35 says, So don't throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he promised. All the uh, the, um, the um, church fathers would, would make statements that all true Christians then will persevere. And only those who persevere are true Christians. And it it drew up this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And the reality is, is Christians ought to be present in their expression of their faith. We shouldn't just rely on a prayer we prayed way back then and just live however we want to. No, we're called to obey presently, to celebrate the promises of God presently. As we do that, no one takes credit for their own faith. We give the glory to God. The picture is through Christ I am called to persevere. Um, Jesus himself said this in John chapter 10 about our salvation. He says, I give to them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. Folks, your salvation is assured due to the promise of God. If you have trusted in him and turned to him in repentance and trusted him to forgive you of your sins, you have the assurance of your salvation. Continue, folks. Now live. Live. Don't check the box and just kind of go to this false assurance that you just, you know, I I want to live whatever way I want to now. No, live with the new heart that Jesus gives you. Pursue him. And and be a person of the book, the Bible, and pursue him and, and allow him to assure you every day of your salvation to be found in Jesus Christ. You know, you may be here and you may have realized, wow, I just realized for the first time, my salvation is not about me. It's not about me coming to church. It's not about me being good so that God looks at me and says, okay, you're in. No, it's about the work of Christ. Celebrate that. You may be here and you may have messed up. I mean, totally messed up with your life. And you're wondering, wow, I just feel like if I just did that, I don't know how I could be a Christian anymore. And I would say, repent from that sin and trust in the work of what Christ has done. The reason you are here and the reason you feel bad about what you've done is a good thing. It's a good thing. It brings you back to a heart that's humble and open to God's leadership in your life. Confess your sin and live as his child. You may be here and you're on the sidelines of Christianity. You may have made a profession of your faith, but your life has not looked anything different. And I would say, turn. Let me rebuke you and and turn from your sin and trust in the work of Christ for your life. Come back. Move away from disobedience and obey, obey, come back to Christ. You may be here and you're walking in confidence because of your own righteousness and your actions. Basically, when you walk into a place like this, you go, huh, my life is not looking as bad as that person. Or, wow, look at all these people here, man. They don't know the Lord like I know the Lord. And you kind of walk around in a judgmental perspective. And I would just say, stop it. Stop it. You're not in because of your works and you don't stay in because of your works. You are here only because of Jesus Christ. Folks, the ground is level at the cross. Welcome to the family. Now we're all on this walk. We're all on this journey. Now walk, walk and celebrate what God in faithfulness to his promises will do in your lives as you are available to him. Folks, we all have to fight to keep the gospel, the power of God unto salvation for all who th- those who believe. This is the power of God. This is not your power. You cannot save yourself. Fight to keep it that way when you allow his power to be moved through you. Some of you were expecting a straightforward answer. I'm going to tell you, you cannot lose your salvation if it's truly yours. If it's truly been given to you, you cannot. But you never want to live a life that tests God on this. Never want to go, okay, I'm going to just live whatever way I want to. That's not a mark of an authentic believer. And so turn from that. Don't do that. That's not what your relationship is based on. It's based on grace and the wonder and the power of God through his faithful promises kept in your life. Come back to that. May we be a church that reflects the grace and the goodness and the faithfulness of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your promises to us that give us an assurance of your work for us. Our salvation is not kept by us, it's kept by you. And you have promised that no one can snatch them out of your hand or your Father's hand. Heavenly Father, may we be people who live like we're called to live. Just rejoicing and, and celebrating and being people of faith who depend on your promises and who, who just leverage everything to promote your kingdom and to be the people, the men and women you call us to be. Move us away from sin. Give us a distaste for anything that displeases you in order that Jesus may be glorified and lifted up in our lives and through our actions. And we pray this in the author and perfecter of our faith's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.